You're listening to Adopted Feels, a podcast about anything and everything adoption related. Last Wednesday, January 13th, was Korean American Day, which celebrates the arrival of the first Korean immigrants to the US over 100 years ago. On that day, I watched the semi-autobiographical film Minari by Korean American writer and director Lee Isaac Chong. It's a classic immigrant story about a Korean family who moved to Arkansas, featuring the aesthetically pleasing Stephen Yeon and an extremely cute kid played by Alan Kim. The film has been well received by audiences and critics alike, but it has been especially meaningful for second generation Korean Americans who have described feeling truly seen. All of this got me thinking about Korean Americans, Korean adoptees, and the ways in which we intersect. As an adoptee, I'm glad that we're being increasingly recognized as part of the broader Korean diaspora, although this recognition has only happened more recently within the last five years or so. Sometimes, to be really honest, I've found it personally triggering when I've heard Korean Americans or Korean Australians talk about the trauma of assimilating to a new country as a young child, or the shame of not knowing about Korean culture or not speaking Korean. I never knew how to react as an adoptee with even less access to Koreanness. I envied my friend when she casually called her mum to check the recipe for myeolchibokgum, the side dish with the little dried anchovies. I withdrew into myself when I realised I was in the same level Korean class as a second-gen Korean Australian who could already converse with the teacher when a simple listening exercise would send my heart racing. It wasn't until I moved to Korea that I became friends with more Korean Americans who often come here with the same questions, tensions and yearnings as adoptees. One of these friends is Aaron Yunsok Choi, a Korean American filmmaker, musician, DJ, passionate home cook and avid plant collector, to name but a few of his many hats. How do we gain understanding and empathy for others' life experiences? The same way we always have, through talking and listening and sharing our stories. Through conversations with Aaron, I've gained a much deeper understanding of the Korean American experience, and his reflections on 12 years of living in Korea have helped me to process my own experiences here. Aaron moved to Seoul in 2008 as an aspiring photographer. While learning about Korean culture and wanting something more than teaching private English students, he started helping friends with their independent film projects and eventually made his own films about the Korean diaspora. Aaron currently works in mostly cultural TV and documentaries as a producer and director for clients like Vice, Netflix, Apple TV, and Hulu. In the future, he hopes to work more in all aspects of film, from narrative to music videos. Aaron is also a DJ and a big lover of records, especially Korean music from the 80s and 90s. This conversation covers a lot of ground, and we don't want you to get lost, so here's a handy episode map before we get started. So we start with Aaron's tumultuous childhood in the U.S., marked by his parents' divorce when he was three, before talking about his move to Korea in his mid-twenties, where he eventually established a creative career. Next, around halfway through the episode, we circle back to the loss of both his parents and how this trauma ultimately led him to start directing his own film projects. And finally, we talk about adoption. We are an adoption-related podcast, after all. Aaron talks about amplifying adoptee voices through film and about his upcoming documentary project for Vice Asia, which is about this very podcast. 
Aaron is such an open, generous, and thoughtful guest, and we hope that his story inspires you to be who you want to be and to tell your own story as it has for us. We start with something like nice and light. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Can we start with um, a little bit about your family and your childhood back in the U.S.? Yeah, sure. Um, Let's see. So I was born in the 80s, uh, 1982. My dad came to America, I think, in the late 70s. Uh, My uncle went to America first. And I don't know the exact story, but I guess like the government kind of helped him get a visa because he was in the military. And um, he went, I think, to like Virginia or something. And uh, he was an engineer, so he, I think, eventually found work and started staying and then got my grandma to come visit, and she enjoyed it so much. And at the time, I think Korea was a really difficult place to live. Mm. Um, I think that was when there was like a military dictatorship, and um, she liked it so much she just wanted to live here. And then my dad, I think, came last because other family members came. And my dad was fresh out of college, and I think he felt lonely, so he went to America and worked um, just like odd jobs. He started like a donut restaurant, and he was doing donuts, but my dad was also an engineer major too. Like he studied physics, but he Mm -hmm. went to America and and did a donut shop, (laughs) which is really funny, but... um, it was really cool. There weren't that many Korean businesses then. They all went to California. And um, I think there's one Korean restaurant at the time in the 70s. But now there's over 100. Um, I think there's like 150 now in where I'm from. Mm-hmm. Um, I have two siblings. I have a brother and a sister. But my parents got divorced when I was three. And uh, I didn't actually see my mom again after that until I think 13 years later. My grandma came too, right? My grandma was there and basically she took care of me growing up. So she was like kind of like my mother figure Mm -hmm. until I was six years old and my dad remarried and uh, to my mom, like I don't call her like my stepmom, but she took care of me my whole life. Um, And they had my brother, who's technically my half brother. uh, But you know, like what does that mean? Like half of a brother. but yeah, it's, mm. my, it's me, my sister who's three years younger than me, and my, my brother who's 10 years younger than me. And we grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. I always say San Francisco, but I'm actually from San Jose. Um, and that's an hour south of San Francisco. It's very, like, suburban. Um, I grew up in areas that were either largely very white or, um, like, very Hispanic, very Vietnamese. Um, there weren't... I guess there were some Koreans, but not the areas that I grew up in. So most of my school life too, it wasn't until high school where I actually met like other Korean people in a school setting. It was usually like us and one other like Korean or two other Koreans. Mm-hmm. And it was actually kind of exciting, like deep down inside being another Korean or seeing another Korean like, you know, somewhere. Um, but yeah, like I, I didn't really grow up, I guess that strongly of a connection to Korean culture, like friends in LA, for example. (laughs) How do you think you felt about um, being Asian and being Korean 
growing up? Um, so I think being Korean, um, you know, like when you go to school, you have like your American side and when you go home, you have your Korean side. Mm. Um, my family, my dad is pretty good at English, but the rest of my family, they couldn't speak English. And I think a lot of times I wouldn't like let those two worlds kind of mix. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as a little kid, you're always self-conscious of being like made fun of. And um, I never wanted to take like a Korean lunch or um, I wasn't really proud of being Korean. um, I think growing up as much like every now and then you would see a Korean person like in the media. Like there's a comedy show called In Living Color and there's one Korean character named Steve Park. And it was amazing seeing another Korean person on there Mm because I'd never seen that before. So in those ways, like we would be really proud to see people or we'd watch the Olympics together and, you know, like the 83rd country to like march kind of down, it would be Korea and there'd be like, you know, 14 people or something like that. Or if they ever won a gold medal is something that we'd be proud of. But I don't think I had like a really strong connection, I think, with my culture as much as like maybe my Chinese friends or um, other friends. Like where I grew up, like people didn't know what Korea was until... I started noticing in middle school because whenever people would ask me like, where are you, you know, from, from, I would say Korea and I would have to explain what Korea is and Mm -hmm. people didn't know what that is. And San Jose actually, you know, we have a huge Asian population and now a big Korean population, but in like the eighties, like people didn't know what Korea was. They only knew about the war. And you were um, just mainly trying to like fit in as a kid. Yeah, like super hard. I think more than like most people, like I spent so much focus on trying to get like, I think acceptance from like, like school or friends that so much, I think it caused me to actually like fail out of high school because I cared too much about the social aspect. Like in high school, (laughs) the first time I actually met like other Koreans and Asians and then like kind of overcompensating, I got super into my Korean side. So I would show like my, yeah, like I got really into like Korean music then. And it was like this really, um, this huge effort for me to like finally be proud of being Korean. But um, I didn't last too long because I didn't feel like really accepted from the Korean people, you know, because I was also like into weird stuff too. And I had a weird sense of humor. And I think growing up, a lot of people just thought I was really random or something. But I never felt like I could be myself around, I guess, even like the other Korean Americans as well. So then, so after that high school, I just got too swept up in like social dynamics of it. And then I started hanging out at the end with like weird kids, like the kids who would smoke cigarettes and do drugs and had like dyed hair. And, um, and then eventually I just dropped out of high school because mm-hmm. I, I just didn't want to go anymore. Mm. Yeah. Like, I really hated high school. How did your parents react when you dropped out of school? I mean, it was crazy. Like, towards the end, I would, like, hide in my room so my mom couldn't take me to school. Because I think, though, I felt, like, social anxiety from going to school. Mm. Because I was, like, bullied at times where I just didn't fit in. And um, I I think I kind of always had this, like, idea that people like they really needed to like me or something Mm -hmm. especially in high school i think high school is like that for a lot of people but um 
I just was avoiding school so much. Um, and I think my dad felt like really, like he didn't know how to take it, but my dad wasn't like the type of guy that you would talk to so much if you had like problems, Mm -hmm. not like his fault or anything, but I think he wasn't raised that way. Mm -hmm. And he was always just busy trying to provide for everybody. But, um, yeah, like I think he felt quite sad and like kind of gave up on me for a while. That's when I became like this, like, you know, rebellious kid. And uh, our relationship was like quite difficult around this time. Like I had to go to therapy. Uh, I actually had to go on probation too, because uh, I was going to raves and I actually was in possession of like drugs, and we were caught on the way to going to a rave. And uh, I only had like a few pills on me. And what's so funny about me is like I'm so clumsy, like. As soon as I started going to raise a month into it, like we just got like pulled over and I had to go be on like probation and stuff. Um, but I mean, like I didn't have any sort of record or anything like that, but like seeing my dad police pick me up from the police station was like the proverbial straw for him. I think after that, he just like, we didn't really talk to each other. I think for like five years. Wow. Yeah, but then this was also the time when I found out that my mom passed away too. So I think in retrospect, I was acting out. And this happened because my dad and I, we just never communicated and I had a bad relationship with my mom around this time too. And we got into an argument one day and uh, my dad just told me like, you know, I said I wanted to go live with mom and my mom was living in Japan then. She jumped around a lot after my parents got divorced. Um, she would live in New York, she would live like here and there, like every time I would get a phone call, Mm -hmm. which is usually like on my birthday, um, like once a year, I would just ask her like, where are you right now? You know? Mm -hmm. And then, um, I think my mom had a lot of her own kind of issues. Um, but yeah, like, uh, the last time I saw her, I got a call and found out that she's living in a rural area of Japan because my her sister actually married a um, Japanese kilpo. So I went to go visit, and uh, later I found out the reason I had to visit her so suddenly with my sister was because she had terminal cancer. So she just wanted to see us before she passed away. And then my dad later told me that she passed away in a fight, and that him and my grandma were hiding it for me from me because uh, they didn't want it to interfere with like my life during school. And what's crazy is like my best friend around this time, who I actually lived with uh, for a period, um, his dad actually committed suicide. So um, I think my friend around this time was going through something like really difficult, of course, Mm -hmm. with that. And maybe my dad took cues from that incident. But the thing about Korean American families, at least from my experience, um, I see like, you know, my partner's hungry and the how much she talks to her mom and how involved they are with their lives. Um, like I'm almost envious because like mm. my parents and I, we never, we didn't really talk even around a dinner table. Like what's funny is that like uh, sitting down for dinner never happened at our house. We always stood at like the, you know, those Island countertops. Mm-hmm. My dad would be reading the paper. I'd be eating something sitting on the couch. My sister would be eating in her room. Like we never really ate together. Yeah. And whenever we would have family, like, outings or get-togethers, they would always be really awkward. But not, like, in a bad way. It's just they didn't really... We didn't know how to do that because we didn't have the foundations of doing that. But what's funny is that um, 
I ended up becoming really close with my brother and sister. Um, and seeing Sangi with her brother is not a typical thing in Korea for siblings to be really close. Right. So I thought that was kind of an interesting dynamic. Yeah. Your parents divorced when mm. you were three. And yeah. you don't have, I guess because you're three is pretty young, you don't have memories of yeah. your mom before that. Looking back, I still don't have a clear image of what she looks like, like in my head. Mm. Um, recently, I got photos, um, and I think I've always had kind of had photos, but it was one of those things like in our family you didn't really acknowledge, you didn't talk about it, you know? Um, I think when Korean families get divorced, uh, when couples, like married couples do, you just don't talk to each other anymore. We don't have a lot of things like child support right. or like mandatory, you know, like, you know, in America, there there's at least some sort of system, mm -hmm. like a court order to share the kid under these conditions. Mm -hmm. But um, Korea, sometimes you just don't see the person ever again. Yeah, it was like, I remember like vividly the last time, like I was in the playground in my backyard and my mom just like said, like bye to me and I didn't understand that she was leaving and then from that point I didn't see her again but then even like taking a step back from that situation my sister was only one years old at that time mm. so to be abandoned from her mom as well and like both of us what's crazy is that like we still don't really talk about it with each other and I feel like we should but we figured out our own ways to kind of um like bottle it up or get over it. And mm -hmm. um, I think it's just sad that we don't talk about it either. I feel like Korean Americans, like, I'm only, I only have like a, I feel like I have a very limited vocabulary as the, you know, son of immigrants, you know, like um, vocabulary in terms of like the English language as well. Um, you know, we didn't speak English much at the house but then it's not like our Korean was that good either so I think that caused us not to speak so much to each other um, you know it's kind of like if you're like in a relationship like me and my you know fiance will fight sometimes because it's really hard to communicate sometimes and it can be frustrating and you know my Korean's pretty good and we try and we learn how to communicate with each other but if you're talking about like serious things, you know, there's a lot of misunderstandings if you're talking in a language that you're not completely comfortable in. So um, you have that, like just not being able to, not having the vocabulary to just like communicate in general, but then also um, you don't know how to talk about like problems with mm -hmm. each other. Mm -hmm. So I think for that, um, it's like a shame because I wish I could talk to like, you know, my brother, my sister about these things more. Mm. And mm -hmm. I think all of us, we kind of tend to bog things up, so. So I was also adopted at three. Yeah. Um, and I don't really remember anything, but um, I think children make sense of things. I think like when you don't know like why your mm. parents left or yeah. relinquished you, then then yeah, as a child, like naturally you're gonna like create some story about it, you know? Mm. And um, well, for me, I find that I am still kind of um, <laughs> influenced in 
in different ways, like, you know, more than 30 years later, from kind of this meaning that I've built around it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, yeah, I think because as a child, you basically, you're like, well, somehow this must have been, like, somehow I, I did something wrong or I was mm-hmm. not, not yeah. something enough because, yeah, your mind's just, like, grasping to make sense of it because mm-hmm. it's, like, crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, like, um, the reason why I can, like, almost navigate this better now is like I'm just more experienced and I'm more like comfortable with myself and uh, I almost think I'm like smarter now to be able to like put like make sense of like the past you know 37 years that I've been alive and you know like how these things like kind of affected you you know you said you were adopted when you were three years old and I was listening to this podcast like that's like actually like three years old is like one of the most formative like ages for like a person right that's when your your brain is like growing in size and your body's going through all these changes and that's why um they say like a lot of kids like kind of act out during Mm -hmm. this period too uh, because they can't make sense of their body and their mind going through all these changes so it tends to make them like unfocused or they act out but um, there's something about that age that things happen to you and you also like don't forget them as well too. Sometimes the saddest part is like you look back on your life and you feel like if you knew the things that you know now, maybe you would have had a happier life, you know? Because I think like until I came to Korea, Mm -hmm. I don't think I was that happy, you know? I think I was quite sad and lonely and I didn't have a lot of friends and it was hard for me to find like romantic connections with Mm -hmm. people and um, I tried so desperately to like define myself and to feel uh, a part of something and it wasn't until I came here where I started to but you know in Korea I had like a two-year like kind of incubating period I feel like because I was just too broke to even go out and socialize and meet people. And the first two years were incredibly hard for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I couldn't get used to the weather. Uh, I came here with like, you know, a super proud, like I'm gonna assimilate kind of attitude. And within six months, I started hating living in Korea Mm -hmm. because um, I just felt, I guess like almost like a second class citizen and um, I couldn't get any work. And it really taught me how to be a tough person but um, I wonder, it's like, if I didn't have these issues, maybe I would have never came here as well, too. Because mm. if I had everything that I so unconsciously yearned for, mm. I probably would have just stayed, mm. right? But there's something about me, it was almost like the existence that I knew then wasn't enough for me. So I almost had to go into like outer space, mm-hmm. you know, like the farthest, like I had to go to Pluto, you know, yeah. just because you tried everything where you're like where you're from you 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 went through like every single possible path to to be happy but i i just i couldn't totally be happy i guess there so you moved here yeah you were like 25 you didn't have a college degree so you couldn't like you know fall back on teaching english um so you said that the first two years were quite Difficult. Yeah. And then after about six months, you were like, oh, in this phase of like, oh, I, I hate it here. Yeah. And then 
what do you think happened? Like, what do you think, like, the turning point was that, I don't know. Well, so I was in a relationship around this time. Um, part of me, like, I came, I feel like I can say this now because now I'm engaged to, you know, a person uh, that I really love. But I was in a relationship with a girl who is from Japan, mm-hmm. and she was Korean. And we both, like, for her, for a Japanese kyopo, to live in Korea, it's like one thing, because she, I think, had a lot of discrimination growing up in Japan, but then everybody would just assume that she's Japanese, like, in Korea, and that was, like, a really difficult explanation that she had to do constantly, Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of times Korean people are just, like, really curious, and it's hard for them, at least at that time, to understand being from, like, two different cultures. Um, I think, like, we both kind of, like, fed this... um, I think everything that we thought was justified while living here, but I think because we both felt so rejected and like it was so Mm. difficult for us to be part of Korean society when we really wanted to just fit in, that um, we would just kind of like have this echo chamber of just like, ah, this happened to me today and this happened to me today. And just like talking about all these microaggressions that happened to you like this week or whatever. Yeah. And um, like looking back, that's not a very healthy relationship to have with somebody too. Um, Not that it was like anybody's fault, but like we broke up and then I think like basically I stayed for another year and I was teaching um, and I had like a decent teaching job. But when I started to meet, I think just kind of go out and meet other people and meet good Korean friends was when that solidified my, I guess, existence here a bit more. Mm -hmm. And it was like, um, I couldn't find community with just regular Korean people, but I think the music scene, that's where I started to meet like more like long lasting friends. And that's where I felt like people were accepting me for who I was. Yeah. Yeah. So just being in like the Hongdae music scene, um, and you know, there's this bar that I used to go to and that I eventually like worked like part-time at those were when i started to meet like good korean friends i think the way that you talk to a korean person the way that a kyopo can approach them is it's like very weird because we look very korean to them but um like the american in me like i'll just go up to somebody and like give them a hug or um, act really friendly from the get-go but in korean society you don't really do that with people at least in the beginning and i remember one time like i hugged my landlord and uh (laughs) she just froze like her body went like lifeless almost you know like um it was like the weirdest thing that i could possibly do to my landlord and i meant it because I hadn't seen her in like months and I just wanted to say hello. It was good to see her. And I was like hugging her like I would hug my aunt. Yeah. And, uh, but it was something you just don't do. And mm-hmm. for Korean people, you don't really do that. So what's funny is that the people I would be most friendly with are like my local mart, like the ajumas, you know, or the ajushis. And um, it's like those people like kind of wear their emotions on their sleeve. And sometimes you'd be in situations where they just, you know, there's a misunderstanding, they start yelling at you. Um, like to reference, you know, Lauren McCullough's episode with uh, that banana incident. Yeah. I mean, I could relate because things like that happen to me too, 
you know, you'll be in a stressful situation where you do something wrong and people mistake you for somebody who's like Korean, Korean, and they start yelling at you. And I don't know what to do in that situation either, even though I can speak Korean, because I don't know how to explain what's happening. And it's also like a rush for me too. But um, just being friendly and saying hello and laughing with like ajumas at my local mart, those were like almost like my friends. Um, those are the Koreans that I connected with most. And then in the context of like music or like subculture, that's when I started to really connect more with people. Yeah. When you come here, you think like, oh, I'm Korean, you know, but it, it's really different if you're Korean American. Um, I was listening to a podcast with Sandra Oh recently, and um, she was with the translator from Parasite. And they were talking about like how just Korean Americans and Koreans, like you think because you look similar and you share these like kind of um, tastes in food um, that you would have all these like ways to kind of relate with each other, but you don't because you're both very different as well too. And that I kind of learned the hard way, like almost like my experience with high school, I tried so hard to fit in mm-hmm. and then I was, I felt rejected and then I wanted to give up. I felt that way about living in Korea too. Mm. And it wasn't until I really gave it a chance and I got to meet people in a different context where we focus on something else instead of me being this caricature of like a Korean person. Yeah. Um, that's when I started to really connect with people. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So you came here, um, you hadn't finished high school, you didn't have a college degree, but yeah. now. You are a successful freelance filmmaker, photographer, and DJ. Yeah. What did that take to get to this point? Like, I mean, I wonder if there was always some part of you that that had some self-belief to, like, you know, try these different creative pursuits or... or I mean, there's also a lot of... Um, you kind of have to self-promote and like really make things happen as a freelancer right right um i think actually self-promotion was one of well no because my one of my good friends derek is going to listen to this and say that's (laughs) bullshit because i'm i think i have a natural like um ability to just sell things Mm -hmm. um Mm. my my dad told me um you know, like, son, you're really good at bullshitting. Like, those are exact, his exact words. Like, you're you're good at bullshitting. I'll give you that. You know, um, so I'm definitely good at like um, making the most out of like maybe if I have like little skills or limited ability to do something. But um, I think with me, it's like I recently like kind of got diagnosed with ADHD. Um, I didn't want to focus on things that I didn't want to do. So I ended up having hobbies like all my life. Like I've been collecting records for, you know, at least like 18 years. Um, I've had pretty much like every single job that you can think of. Like I've waited tables. Um, I've acted in English videos. I've worked at a record store. I worked at a bookstore. I worked at clothing stores. I worked all these different jobs. Mm-hmm. I got pretty much fired from every single one of these jobs because I was really bad at just staying and doing one thing. Mm-hmm. I would get distracted a lot, but um, I always enjoyed having all these little passions. So it was photography for me, 
which eventually led into film. Mm -hmm. And then I was always just into music um, and finding music, which led into DJing. But these are things like I still look back and I don't even know how I got to this point, especially in Korea. But I learned how to survive while living here. Mm. Like um, if I have to be able to pay rent, I just have to be able to pay rent. So I'm going to figure out whatever way I'm going to do it. And living here taught me that I needed to diversify what I can do to make money. So that's Mm -hmm. why I've done so many different jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I have this joke, like Korean Americans, they come here, like level one of being a Korean American in Korea is like you teach English. And then like level five, you, you know, you own a hog one. And then level 10, you own like a burger shop, you know? (laughs) Uh, But at one point you work at uh, radio, like TBS or Arirang and, I've worked in TBS. I had my own show too, um, and then I found what out. What was your show about? It was I was playing electronic music, but I was oh, a guest cool. on a lot of shows. Hmm. But I had a horrible experience because um, there's this thing called like kepyon, uh, which means like every season they have to do like this huge change for like the decision makers up top to look like. I think the people working at the radio station are like doing a lot of things. And my show I thought was good. I feel like it was a little bit ahead of its time because that's when electronic music wasn't so big in Korea. Mm-hmm. And it was on TBS, so I'm mostly playing for like, you know, taxi drivers who are trying to practice their English. But I'm playing, you know, music from all over the world. And now the electronic music scene is a lot more established here. But I think if I had that show now, it would be okay. But I also got like some discrimination as a Korean American too. I remember when I got like quote unquote fired from my show, one of the um, radio producers asked me if I knew somebody to fill in some spot who, it was for radio, but he was like, they wanted them to be white or black is what they told me. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, I'm on radio. Like it doesn't even matter. I could say that I'm white, you know, and I, I could sound white. But something about a kilpo, it's like, um, it wasn't good enough for them. So I just told them like, you know, screw you guys. I don't ever want to work for you guys again. And I just realized it's also like not a consistent job to do things that you don't totally want to do. So I started just following my passions. And um, when I got fired from that, I got called to CNN and I worked on the Seoul Ferry tragedy. Um, I got to see a different caliber of like working, like, you know, producing cool, yeah. that I wasn't used to before. Um, that's where I met Salman, the cameraman oh, yeah. that I worked with recently, um, on our shoot. And, um, I think things started taking off around then, but for the first, like, you know, five to still like eight years, I struggled a lot and, um, it's still difficult. Like, honestly, like when I was younger and still to this day, I, see myself becoming homeless a lot and that's like my biggest fear uh for some reason i don't know i just think it's so um maybe a lot of people think this way but i i think i'm constantly trying to just like not make myself be homeless but living in korea definitely taught me how to hustle Mm -hmm. so yeah did it not come naturally at first though hustling do you think it's like something you you did kind of learn yeah experience well like you know i was like kind of i willfully transplanted myself in a foreign country Mm -hmm. where i didn't have like any sort of skills i was almost second rate in that you know like i couldn't just get a teaching job because i was white you know um and 
I just had to because I knew I didn't want to like starve or something and I had no safety net mm-hmm. um yeah your dad had already said I can't support you so exactly. you just like stay there <laughs> exactly exactly yeah. so I felt like this kind of duty also to help like my family um, in this position so now looking back if I ever had kids I would want to put them through like a similar situation like I wasn't like a yuhak saying you know I wasn't mm. studying abroad I was like put in a foreign country and I had to learn how to adapt very quickly and just make the best of what I have it for us it's not like we have um, you know thousands of job opportunities to you know um, to choose yeah. from we have like a very limited skill set here but that actually made it easier on what I wanted to do because it's like I was able to separate also my hobbies from just working so I was like I'm just gonna work and try to make money and then save up enough money so I could have some hobbies you know on the side right yeah but then these hobbies later became work which is crazy because it just became really consistent yeah so that's amazing yeah yeah I'm still like flabbergasted Mm. you know like even my dad up until he passed away I think he was just really surprised you know like because the last memory he has of me is like honestly like picking me up from like jail you know and uh just seeing me as like this kid with like blue hair in high school Uh and then you know giving your dad or your parents like we call it yongdon, where it's like spending money. You know, that's like actually like a really good feeling. Um, yeah. So being able to give them money um, and just even like that, I think both of us in that situation, we're both really surprised. Like, is this really happening? Mm-hmm. But um, it's also a crazy thing too, because I was listening to a John Cho podcast and there's this like kind of false narrative that Korean American parents like to perpetuate where they say like, I moved here for you. And it's like so much pressure to put on a kid as well, too. Yeah. When it's like, to be honest, you moved here for yourself. You chose to have me, you know, like, like you can't say something like that. Because if you say that, then it at an early age, it starts like really messing with somebody's like point of view and stuff, too. I guess just on the topic of your parents. Yeah. So, um... You were able to see your mom once again, once more um, before right. she, before she died of cancer. Yeah, and you were a teenager. Yeah, so I went with my sister and my grandma. I remember my grandma like she bought a bunch of clothes and food to give to her, and I think it was because like she felt sorry for her situation. You know, I think the circumstances of my parents' marriage it was like. Like, my dad probably, like, rushed into things, and he wasn't totally happy, and they both got into fights, and maybe she rushed into things, too. And I see a lot of similarities, um, just even stories of my mom and myself. Like, sometimes being really impulsive, uh, wanting to move around a lot, and uh, it's really weird when you want to connect your personality to somebody because it makes more, like, it helps make sense of who you are, but you don't know who that person is. Because mm. you, you haven't been able to get, like, first-hand experiences. Like, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, I'm this way because my dad's, like, this way. Yeah. And I didn't always feel like, you know, I look like my dad, but I didn't feel like my personality was like my dad. I felt like my um, dad was more like maybe my brother or my sister. 
And then just having this person that you didn't really know and trying to explain who you are through them is really crazy. But I mean, I went to go see my mom at, um, I think it was Narita Airport. And I remember just like meeting mm. and she just runs up and hugs us and it's like crying, you know? It's weird to have somebody like hug you and you feel like absolutely nothing. Still to this day, like um, I didn't really understand it because when you're a little kid, you wanted to see them so much. And then when it comes down to the situation, it's almost too much to handle. Mm-hmm. Um, and you almost think it's going to be like better in a way. Like you think it's going to be like the parent trap or something. Like there's this event that links everybody when it actually just feels like really normal. So that's almost, um, it's almost weird in that way. You think about it so much in your head and when yeah. it actually happens, it's, it's just so different than yeah. you actually think it's going to be. Yeah. So it's not like it was like disappointing or anything, but I even had hoped that I would be more emotional in that situation. And I felt bad that I wasn't. And then we stayed with my mom for like a week. And even in that situation, like she tried really hard to talk to me, but it was so awkward. I had trouble even just looking and communicating with her as well too. Yeah. Um, and after that, we didn't really keep in touch as much. And um, I feel really bad, you know, because... It's kind of one of those things that like we missed out on a relationship with each other so that we didn't really know how to communicate with each other too. You know? So a few years ago, um, <laughs> you also um, had the loss of your dad. Yeah, yeah. And so you'd been living here for a few years. Yeah, so um, I was shooting a music video then in LA. And um, the crew had to go shoot a music video then after in Alaska and LA and then I stayed. It was around this time, maybe that was before, but um, you know, my boss was also from California too. And I asked her, can I go uh, see my parents? She's like, oh, that's totally fine. So I, I reserved two weeks to go see them. And then my dad didn't come to pick me up and he always would come and pick me up. And then I found out that he was like sick, but he didn't know what he had. He saw some hokey like doctor who was giving him like like acupuncture, but my dad had a swollen leg, but it turned out that that was from having um, swollen lymph nodes. My dad had like this really rare form of lymphoma that was very aggressive. And uh, they thought that he had this one cancer that was so like really treatable. He finally got diagnosed after two months and it was crazy. I was sleeping at the hospital almost every day um, I felt like my role as a producer like really came into play. Um, it was so important that I was there because I was translating for my dad. My mm-hmm. dad wasn't getting proper care because he's just an Asian man and I feel like a lot of people weren't really listening to him, you know? There are a lot of situations where he needed something and I knew what he needed but people wouldn't listen and that was really frustrating because you know, my dad would be screaming because he'd be in so much pain. Mm-hmm. But then um, we fit. Th- we thought he had, was like diagnosed and it would be okay. And then, um, you know, I was going about, on about my life. I was working on this like food commercial um, and I had this party. And then the night, of, the night before, my mom called me and said, you have to come like right now. Dad's in serious condition. We had to take him to the emergency room. I flew back. I couldn't get there in time, but I had to pack and basically fly out eight hours later. And uh, by the time I arrived, my dad had already passed away. And then um, 
it was crazy. Like it just came and my dad couldn't hold out any longer. And it turned out uh, that he had, yeah, an aggressive form of lymphoma. And uh, yeah, it was like, he got diagnosed and within two weeks he passed away. Oh, wow. Yeah. So like my mom passed away and my dad passed away. And having that happen where both like your plan A and your plan B are just gone is a really weird feeling as well too. Like I felt like, um, like I felt like my body was slowly disintegrating. Like I felt completely like not, like I was fading away into like a uh, space or something, which is like really weird. Like I didn't know if I existed anymore because my parents weren't here. Mm. And that was also a really weird feeling. Like you suddenly felt um, like not grounded. Or, exactly. Yeah. Like, uh, like gravity and my body were just like separating, you know, like I felt like I was floating, but like not in a good way, like I'm floating. Like I just felt like I was losing grasp of like reality. Not my mm. psyche, but mm. just like physically, I felt like not of this world. Which is really weird. Do you think um, in the, like, about two years since, do you think there are even, like, little kind of everyday things that are perhaps, like, really slowly helping you um, heal or process some of that trauma? Definitely. Um, well, what's been nice with COVID is that a lot of production companies can't come out here. So I've been in the role where I've gotten to direct things. And I mean, it's frustrating doing my job because, you know, I work mostly with foreign production companies that want to do something in Korea about Korean culture. So it's usually about food or like um, a lot of times it is, it's cliche, but plastic surgery or like, you know, suicide or, I mean, those are actually some pretty dark topics to have to regularly do stories on. But like, you know, gaming or um, all these like well-known aspects mm, of K-pop. Korean culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I started just feeling frustrated. Like I didn't want to do my job anymore, at least in the vein that I was doing it. Yeah. Which was just being an assistant so that this crew can come over and just shoot something. And it's just very... I don't want to say like typical because I've worked with a lot of companies that did something really cool too, mm -hmm. but it's this very like made for TV depiction of Korea, mm. you know? Mm. And sometimes Korean life can be like culture can be a lot more just normal. And I think I want to show sometimes people that life is not that much different than in America or in any other country that we're more alike. Um, what's funny is that a lot of people, they like don't want to see race um, and any of the dynamics that come with race but culture has to be like so kind of distinct and Korean culture has to be so exotic in mm -hmm. a way, you know? Um, it's like, we're all the same, but you won't let Korean culture just be its own thing. Basically, um, getting chances to be able to tell my own stories um, and giving my life kind of more purpose. Mm. Um, I think before, like my purpose was just my parents uh, and my partner. And then now I feel like actually ambitious to do projects and tell stories that I want to tell. What does it mean to you now to be Korean? Or do you think like living in Korea has, um, you know, changed your sense of like cultural identity? 
Yeah. Um, I mean, I can explain, you know, uh, more in depth now to somebody who doesn't know Korea what Korea is. Um, I have a good sense of like how Korean people think, which is amazing because living here, I got to understand my parents more. Mm. And I think the reason why I got closer with my parents was being apart from them, but then also being able to see like, you know, um, 10 million Korean people on a daily basis and the way that they act was very similar to the way that my parents would act, or at least like older generation. And I started to forgive them for a lot of things that just Mm. were more part of Korean society. Um, What's weird is that I came here feeling really American, and now I've been here for so long. For 12 years, I mean, that's a third of my life, right? Um, I'm not sure if I feel American anymore. I just feel like a kind of in-between, hmm. you know? I tried so hard recently to um, just fit into Korea, and I only realized, um, honestly, like six months ago, that I shouldn't have to try so hard either. Like, I spent so long trying to fit into America because of you know, societal pressures. And then here, um, I can just be myself and that's totally fine. Um, and if people don't understand me, um, then so be it, you know? Like, I'm just gonna be who I want to be. And coming to that realization also, I don't think I could have had um, if I had not come to Korea, mm. yeah. All right, just to finish off, um, you've made friends with Korean adoptees. Yeah. Like myself here, mm-hmm. and also through your film and TV work, um, you have amplified adoptee voices. Like, for example, in that segment of um, Huang's World. Yeah. Uh, where, Did you see it? Yeah, okay, yeah. Cool. Where, like, Eddie Huang visits Kovut and yeah. meets Pastor Kim and, yeah. like, learns about um, yeah. the history of Korean adoption. Um I guess um, this, like, allyship, it it became this quite intentional thing for you at some Mm -hmm. point. Yeah, um, I came to Korea, you know, thinking that I would really, like, get along with Koreans and become super Korean. But then I actually met, you know, like, the Korean kind of diaspora. Mm. Um, Going to Korean language school, I met people from, like, Uruguay, you know, half Koreans, Koreans from Japan. And then... I met a woman named Marie Tay McDermott and she worked for the New York Times and she came here on a Fulbright scholarship and did a magazine and she actually invited me to a um, like a dinner at Koru and around this time me and my friend Umin Hyun who's a Japanese kyopo uh, we were working on a film for his um, grad school project at Tokyo University and it was a film Um, called No Place Like Homeland, and it was about uh, Koreans from different countries, um, like, coming back to Korea and just talking about their lives. And um, I got to know more about adoptees um, through Marie, and she introduced me to a bunch of her friends and, you know, just kind of introduced me to, like, her culture, in a way. And it was something that I didn't really know about. I actually went to school with a Korean American adoptee. um, And I remember that like kind of sticking out, you know, because I just always thought like adoptees were on like TV, right? You would see that like with white families, but I never saw it with like an Asian 
um, person. Um, I remember that kind of sticking out in my head and I was just trying to understand, like she's Korean, but it's different, you know? And I, um, like we don't have the same backgrounds, but Marie getting to know her. Um, so we did some interviews with different adoptees, like one from France and then um, her from America. And then I got to be friends with other adoptees through her network, like just people kind of coming through. And honestly though, in my head, I still didn't understand it. And I just kind of thought like, well, I'm gonna take care of them. Uh, we're just kyopos, you know? And I just wanted to call them kyopos so they didn't have to explain to other people in social situations. I, I knew that they were adoptees, but you know, if I'm introducing an adoptee friend, I don't want to immediately just say like, mm. he's an adoptee. Like that's why, you know, um, we're not speaking Korean with you right now. Or maybe we might be, but just so that they don't have to explain things. But it's not the same thing, you know? Um, it's, it's really different. And through talking to people um, and just trying to listen and understand has really showed me that. But a lot of the adoptees that I met have actually taught me how to come to terms with my own like, kind of experiences, like growing up as a Korean American, because we don't really have, um, I mean, we have some, some media, we have some like, what is it, some films or TV or, um, you know, stories that people kind of know about, like through like David Chang or Margaret Cho or, um, I don't know, like there's some famous notable Koreans, but I don't feel like we have this kind of unity almost in a way, like everyone's experiences are so different. I feel like Korean Americans, we also try to like constantly one up each other. Um, I remember talking to an adoptee friend, he was like, yeah, like I have Kyopo friends, but whenever I'm with them, they always try to compare like who's Korean is the best. And it's like kind of uncomfortable for me. And I was like, <laughs> I realized we probably do that because it's like our way of like us trying to show that we're more in touch with our parents, you know, like because I speak Korean really well, it's, it's more like this kind of uh, overcompensating for them, like for us not being as close with their families, you know, oh, okay. um, what's kind of weird. I think with adoptees, I thought about today uh, before you came, it's like um, with us, we're never able to perfectly communicate with our parents, you know, um, of course, you know, you can't just speak to your birth parents in Korean, but with my dad, you know, we would always feel uncomfortable talking English and uncomfortable talking Korean. Mm. So there's just no path to ever really get mm -hmm. close with each other. Yeah. You know, our cultures were just too different and that's all I had. So that kind of thing, I think, you know, that's why Korean Americans are I can speak on behalf of Korean Americans, that's so why we like to try to kind of flex how well we can speak Korean, like, you know, but um, things like, you know, Huang's world and stuff, I was approached by Eddie Huang. He was really cool because I think the right way to shoot a television show, if you want to shoot in Korea, let the fixer or the local decide where to eat, what to shoot. If yeah. you want a really um, accurate portrayal of Korea. And Vice is all about like niche kind of stuff. But they didn't really know, and I think Eddie, because he's Asian American, and he wrote books about his experience being Asian American, like fresh off the boat. Um, he just said, Aaron, you know better than me, just tell us what we need to do. Mm, and that yes. was amazing, because yeah. 
sometimes like I love Vice. They they you know put food on my table, but you know sometimes they want to do stories that aren't really things in Korea. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and here was this golden opportunity where this person said like, "What do you think that we should talk about?" And I immediately like kind of jumped at the chance, and you know I wanted to just showcase my friends, and it's a food show. That's also about culture, and he wanted to do something that connects to um, kind of Korea's rise as a country, like in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And a big proponent of that that people don't realize is through adoption. Mm. So I thought, you know, place three people who work in the context of food. There's like A.K. Saling, um, who's working with Danish food. Um, there's Matt, who's working with like Korean food and American food, and he's just a super talented chef. Um, and then we had another person, but I think we ended up just shooting with them because of scheduling. And then Pastor Kim cooked something, and he was funny because he found <laughs> out that it was a food show, and I guess he felt like his food wasn't good enough. But we all know like <laughs> co-root lunches are amazing, you know, like. When they would have the ajumas come in and make panchan, oh, it's yeah. super good. Um, but it gave you know AK and Matt and Pastor Kim, who's also an activist himself, to talk about their um, views on international adoption, and that's something that you didn't really see before, yeah. especially in the context of just like sharing a meal. Yeah, you know, it wasn't like this. Um, documentary with like archival footage of the Korean War and like people starving on the streets. It was talking about like now and how this is still like part of Korean culture, and there are stigmas against like you know single mothers and all these uh, structural problems in Korean society and American society and the adoption agency that they're just kind of laying it all on the table. And this is something that Eddie was super engaged with, and I think. Um, It highlighted like a niche culture um, that needed the opportunity to like kind of talk. So I think a lot of people maybe they might be watching the show and not expect much, like just like a hipster, you know, TV show. And then it's like talking about something that you don't even really see in in any media, yeah. you know, um, outside of adoptee filmmakers and what they've contributed. Yes. So I'm just so blessed at like all the people in my life. If I can just spend my time just elevating them and showcasing them, I think I would be really happy. And I just feel like um, I'm constantly surrounded by people who inspire me, and I feed off their energy. So that's like what I wanted to do. And um, Eddie was super cool, and it was like one of the most inspiring um, producing jobs I've ever done. So. Okay, and so finally, just super briefly, um, can you tell us about your upcoming do- short documentary project for Vice that yeah. you're directing? Yeah. So, um, like I mentioned, because of COVID, like Vice couldn't come out here to shoot things, and I've been working with Vice Asia, and we've been working on projects that kind of are more reflective of what's going on in Asia through like an Asian viewpoint, and I wanted to do something on identity. And like things like mental health and living in Korea through a podcast, and I got to find out about your podcast when I was working on a different show that didn't work out, and shame on them because I think we had an amazing story just from my phone conversation with you. Um, 
that had just so much potential and it worked. And I think it was something that I definitely wanted to cover, but they didn't understand it because I think it's just, honestly, sometimes companies that come here and they want something that's very, very Korean yeah. and anything that's like not the uh, stereotype of what Korea is to them in their heads. They don't want to do that. So I said like, you know what, like their loss and I pitched the story to Vice and they thought it was really good. And then just getting to know you and shooting with you. And it's been like a super good experience. And I've, I've never worked so hard on a project <laughs> before, like just putting in the work, yeah. like, um, you know, like just writing and doing research and trying to listen to as much, um, episodes that you and like Ryan have done. I listened to Ryan's podcast, watch movies like first person plural, um, thankfully, um, shout out to Deanne Borchet. My sister's been working with her for like five years. So um, she has been helpful for me. And then even just talking to like different adoptee uh, mutual friends like Lauren and Matt and Jenny and Ben and just everybody who's also giving me feedback too. Um, I think there's so much kind of media coverage on adoptees that's told... Um, from one point of view, mm -hmm. and I just kind of wanted to extend, um, like kind of, there's already a lot of stories that are very similar about adoptees, and I wanted to show something that just focuses on like you and your life here and the work that you're doing. I remember listening to the episode with you and the quote unquote like angry adoptees, and like, um, I don't know if it was Kimora or maybe it was Jenny, like you'd be interviewed by the newspaper and then when it comes to talking about like the work that you're actually doing, like events or community outreach, yeah. like that stuff would just not be included in the paper. Mm. And then it's like, what kind of story are you trying to tell, you know? Um, then it's like, do you just kind of want this typical um, story of somebody's childhood and then like them, like- Their birth family search. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I, I wanted to show something that was just a bit more like kind of a day in somebody's life. And I think there's so many um, good shows that I've been inspired by uh, with people like, you know, like an Indian person talking about their life in New York City. And there's something really special about just living in Korea. Um, it's kind of hard to explain in words, you know, yeah, you have to do I it like so. you have to do it visually. And I think in this way, um, it was a good opportunity to highlight some good work. Um, to tell a good story and hopefully like kind of get through to people who either want to come and try to live here, who want to understand um, this topic or this type of people more or just understand themselves a bit better. Um, and for that, I hope it's just a good introduction for more people to listen to your podcast. Oh. Yeah, so that's like what I wanted yeah. the most. Thank you so much, Aaron. We have a random question segment. Okay. Don't think... Don't think at all. Just just um, answer with the first thing that comes into your mind. Okay. When you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, like when I was like really young? Yeah. Uh, astronaut? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Astronaut or scientist? Okay. Yeah. Why? I don't know. Um, I just thought they were really cool. I really liked science growing up. Yeah. Okay. Two, um, do you have a favorite documentary film? I would say Dear Pyongyang. It's a film about a Japanese kyopo filmmaker 
and her dad was an organizer with the Japanese uh, community, uh, the Korean community in Osaka, Japan. They were very sympathetic to like North Korea and he was like promoting like North Korean propaganda. And then eventually he sent his three um, sons to North Korea to live um, in the late 70s when they thought that Korea and Japan would, uh, Korea and North Korea and South Korea would reunite. But then once you're there, you can't leave. And it's a documentary about their whole life um, told from his daughter's point of view with just a camcorder and follows his dad and her dad is so cute like he's really funny but like kind of crass and offensive and he just did this really serious thing like he sent his three kids to North Korea for them to never come back again and just his thoughts on that oh wow and um, it's shot in a very like DIY way but she's an amazing filmmaker and I think the the films that she does are incredible so super inspiring yeah Okay, um, if you had to smell something for the rest of your life, mm-hmm. what would it be? Uh, <laughs> yeah. A smell I mean, that you really like. Yeah. Actually, this sounds like kind of morbid, but um, I still keep a vest that my dad owned. Oh, yeah. And he had this really strong aftershave called like Aramis. Mm-hmm. I still think he like wore it to this day. Or, like, it was like Ralph Lauren or something. Um, but I still keep that vest and I smell it just to remind me of my dad. Mm. Yeah. Um, is there a lesser known Korean food that you think more people should try? In like America or something? Yeah. I mean, honestly, like Pyongyang Ningmyeon is one of the reasons I can't leave Korea. (laughs) It's just so good. It takes three times to get into it. But um, it's like good soba, you know, it's like mostly buckwheat. The broth is very mellow and pure, but I think it's so good. And in mm. summer day, like you can't really beat mm. that. And when it used to get really hot here, my thing was to go eat Pyongyang Nimyeon and then take a taxi to go eat Pingsu. And those <laughs> two together, it's like, yeah. it's not good for your health, I think, to eat just, just cold dishes like that. But... It's really good. And I think it shows that Korean food isn't all red. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Adopted Feels Podcast. We're on Twitter at Adopted Feels. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We also have a Patreon if you'd like to further support us from as little as a dollar a month. Please head to www.patreon.com forward slash adopted feels.